episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Halstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing fine, Jody. How are you? I'm just catching up on a little breath after that really long hello. Yeah, you want me to talk for a bit so you can recover? No, I'm not lightheaded yet, so I'm okay. All right, good. We'll just continue <laughs> with the podcast then. That's right. right. What are we doing today? We have a user request Yes, today. we We're do. We're a listener request, not a user request, a listener request. We do. And it's from Kosi Akoli, I believe is the correct pronunciation. If I butchered your name, I am very sorry, Kosi. All right. But what did our dear listener request that we chat about today? Different reverb units. And this particular one that we have chosen for today as a deep dive is the Lexicon 224. Very cool. Yes. And if you are a listener to the podcast, you would know that we did an episode, a deep dive on the 480. But this is the uh, younger brother, so to speak. Or or the younger no, 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 no. This would older. be the older brother, like the precursor. <laughs> I was, see, I was thinking go by size. This is a smaller one, and then <laughs> yeah. I butchered the intro. Oh, well. Anyway, we're going to talk about the Lexicon 224 yes. today. Yes, yes. If you would like to listen to the 480 episode, that is episode 92 that we have. Today, it's all about the 224. Go over a quick history here. Obviously, Lexicon was founded in 1971 by two MIT professors. Those smart buggers. Right? Mm -hmm. Dr. Francis Lee and engineer Chuck Bagnashi. And as we all know, we're, they were focused primarily on delays and reverbs, that kind of thing. And that's kind of what we think about. At least I do when I think uh, Lexicon. Lexicon is definitely the reverb gods. Right. The 224 was the brainchild of Dr. David Greisinger. Say that um, 10 times fast. I barely made it through one, so I'm going to stick with that and cut my losses, I think. Right. This was unveiled at the AES show in 1978, so late 70s. And What do you the, think uh, they did for seven years before they came to the 224? I think they probably plotted and <laughs> planned for world domination and the reverb market. Well, I imagine that. You okay. know, there's probably R&D, R&D, that kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know. Don't ask me questions I can't answer. But the 224 was the second digital reverb ever, as mm -hmm. far as I understand it. And what was the first one, Jody? The EMT 250. Yep. The 224 was priced around $7,500 to $79, depending on configuration. Mm -hmm. And that was actually considered an affordable piece because the EMT was fetching about twice that. Or more. So, <laughs> right. So, um, you know, it became a hit pretty much straight away, the 224, and not withstanding its amazing sound. And sure, people sure. are still using them today, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Maybe not always as the original hardware form, but definitely in plug-in software form. Yeah. People like to talk about the lexicon sound, right? And mm -hmm. we're thinking about these classic units, both this one and the 480, stand the test of time, right? So they're truly a classic unit. Yes, it is. And the crazy thing is, and this reminds me of my very first audio card, in a sense, is that it is only a 12-bit reverb. 
And when you think right. about that with where we're at now, where most things are 24 or 32-bit or even probably approaching 64-bit operation, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Yeah. My first audio card was 14-bit. That's just strange because that was odd. But this was 12-bit operation. Yeah. The cool thing about it is that it had the ability to store and recall presets, which was kind of a new functionality to reverbs. Yeah, and when we think about the time there again, like 78, that's a hefty bit of processing going on there anyway, right? I was still so, learning to ride a bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say something funny. I'm still trying to learn, but that's, <laughs> it wouldn't be funny and it wouldn't be true. So right. I'll just continue on with the podcast. It was a mono or stereo outputs, mm -hmm. and it also had the ability to do quad, which... To me, it's like when I realized that, it's like, how much more 70s can you get? Like, well, they, like made, they were trying audio. to make quad phonograph records. So it makes sense that they would try that. Yeah, that was the frontier at the time, right? And we sure. Quadraphonic sound and all this kind of stuff. Not completely unlike how we're being exposed to like Atmos and all yeah. this kind of stuff, right? So one of the things that I thought was kind of funny and for no other reason than it just seems unusual to me. But if you were running it in stereo mode, mm -hmm. in the back of the hardware box obviously had, had four outs, right? A, B, C, and D. Yep. But if you're running it in stereo, you would use outputs A and C. That's just right? bizarre. Where what what happened to B? That little <laughs> well, B piggy D got lost. Right, B and D would be, would have been for the quad operation, right? Sure. Now, to me, that's only odd because I'm anal retentive and it should be A and B, right? But mm -hmm. um, there you go. So if you have one of these and you just found it at a yard sale, then you're very, very lucky and you go home <laughs> and plug that out. But if you try to use outputs A and B, it's going to sound a little bit weird. You can find them today as well. Like you, I, I was able to look up a couple and you can find them on the used market and mm -hmm. anywhere from 2900 and up. And when you think about that price, yeah. that's not too bad for an old piece of gear. No, it's not. And that's, you know, you get to have that remote control sitting on your desk there, right? So So you look uh, cool. You look cool. You can raise your rates a little bit because you got like a 224. Right? <laughs> you got the original hardware, yes. Right? Yeah. And then you can say that, oh, it sounds so much better than the software. And that's why I can charge what I do. Right. But speaking of software, we do have software versions, don't we? So, we do. And yeah. the first one that comes to my mind, because I use it like substantially, is the Universal Audio 224L on the mm. Apollo series. So that's like a beautiful thing. Although they, they now have Spark and it's in the Spark setup too. So you don't have to have Apollo to use the UA version anymore. Well, that's cool. But because I'm, I'd be remiss to say because I'm, I'm a Slate user, the 224 is part of the Verb Suite Classic plugin, which is collaboration between Slate and Liquid Sonics, right? Mm -hmm. So I have it in there. Native Instruments have their RC24. Uh, yes. They also have the 48, the RC48, they're both made by Softube, but through Native Instruments. And of course, Lexicon have their own software reverbs as well. So, Yep. And if you don't have any of those, you might be able to find an IR of some of their presets. Yeah. They are then, floating around out there. So yes, at least they, they used to be. Yeah. Before we move on to the actual controls of the unit, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. 
And we're back. What we're gonna start diving into now is the actual controls of the unit of the Lexicon 224. Chris, kick us off. Well, just like the 480, and be prepared to hear that a couple of times because there's so many similarities here, right? Sure, but, but, but I'm not it, gonna it, say it, you are. <laughs> I, I'm probably gonna, I've already said it at least three times, right? Mm -hmm. There is obviously just the housing unit first that sits in your rack, and I wanna say it's like a four space, thing, right? But there's a rack unit that houses the processors, right? Yep. And then all the controls would happen on the Alark, the Lexicon Algorithmic Remote Control, which is that little nice white box that we'd have on our desk. White. Beige, baby. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking the it was probably white. white. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, maybe it was beige. I, I was thinking all was just discoloration. Or an off-white. It's like a very discolored egg shell. It, it's that... 70s white is yes, what I'm saying. 70s say, white. Right? There you go. <laughs> yeah. There, of course, all the operation took place on that thing. Right? Yes, it did. And so, that sat right on your console to make you look stupid cool. Exactly. Can you describe that for us a little bit? Because you're the cool one of the two here, right? Well, it had a little wood box thing. The top was the plastic thing with buttons and LED readouts and sliders on it that you could then manipulate to do all kinds of things. And to me, the LED readout almost looks kind of like the Coleco football <laughs> output. I don't know why I thought of that, but that's what it reminds me of as a kid. I used to play Coleco football and you'd run little LED lights across the screen. It was really kind of silly. Those things are what make up the box. And then of course there's a, what looks like a RS-232 serial port connector that then goes off the back end of the device and into the rack mount unit that takes all the controls that you're using the box for, the LARC. Right. Yeah. So to just describe this box, if you haven't seen one, and if you haven't seen one, use Google. It's your friend. It kind of looks like a calculator in a way, but with right. sliders. But we got the screen, we got the readout for input and things, and it would have like an overflow button. We got all the controls, obviously, for recalling and even storing presets, right? Now, we're mm -hmm. not going to cover the actual operation here, but, but that's how you would do that. The reverb itself would have these different banks, depending on which configuration, how much memory, presumably, you would get with the unit, you would have access to these different banks of reverbs. Shouldn't really have to say it, but I'm going to say it. And these are obviously algorithmic reverbs. They're, they're mathematical calculations that are happening. It's not IRs or anything. It's just algorithmic reverbs, naturally. Mm -hmm. So That's why I called them very smart from MIT. Yeah. Yes. Anybody from <laughs> MIT is probably, yeah. On a side note there, does it ever bother you when somebody calls like MI, as in like GIT, they call it MIT? No, because I, hear people I, I do rarely that. ever hear it, so why do I care? I, I, I hear that. I'm, not, I'm thinking like, look, I'm not that smart, right? <laughs> 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 what I did was MI, not MIT. But anyway, back on track with the podcast. So we have different banks here to call up different main reverbs, if you will. Yep. So we have small concert hall on bank one. Bank two, we have vocal plate. Well, how about you take a step back? Small concert hall B on That's bank true. one. Because there are this two. Is true. There are two. And again, it doesn't apply to my anal retentiveness. Why is B first? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't design it. Somebody needs to be held accountable for that. But no, so we got small concert hall B, like you said. We got a vocal plate on bank two. Bank three is a large concert hall B. Yes. 
We have an acoustic chamber on four. We have a percussion plate A on five. We have a small concert hall A on six. And then we had on the original units, we have two modes here that were selectable for mode enhancement and decay optimization. And, and what they did was that they just set the parameters when you called up the, the preset a bit to the intended sound of those particular banks were. Mm -hmm. Did I miss anything out on those? Or is that anything you want to add to well, that? Well, you, you announced that it's the initial hardware version of that. On some of the software versions, Bank 7 and 8 are actually slightly different things, where Bank 7 is a room A, mm -hmm. and then Bank 8 is a plate type sound. Yeah. These are additional so, sounds that came later. Right. I believe that may have been part of the the other versions that came after, like the, the XL and stuff, right? 224 yes, yes. L and 2XL, so mm -hmm. uh, additional. But of course, like you mentioned, in the software world these days, we have a lot of benefits that we can add that were not present in the unit. I mean, you're, you're the UA guy, and you mentioned that you have, because again, UA have a fully licensed version of this, so they can call it whatever the lexicon it is. lexicon 224. <laughs> right, but things like you could remove noise from the unit, right? Yes, there is, is the, the ability to world. actually not have the hardware noise of the item running, which right. is kind of cool. Yeah, because how many times have we done that? You're sitting with a mix and all of a sudden you go like, where is that noise coming from? And it's a plugin that's emulating the noise of <laughs> the analog yes. gear. And so th that's nice to turn that off. And I believe obviously like wet dry mixes and stuff that were not on the actual unit, right? So... Benefits from that as well. Then we have the sliders mm -hmm. that are underneath. That obviously takes care for more more of the uh, how you'd operate and set up the reverb. So well, once you select a bank or a, a multiple of banks, you can then use the sliders to affect the way the reverb times and diffusions and other things work within said reverb algorithm. Right. We have six sliders on the unit. The first one is bass. What that is, it's essentially the time constant of the low end of the reverb. Right. The next one is what's actually called mid, which is mm -hmm. the time for everything above what we have. Now, the third one ties into what I just said, and that's called the crossover. And that's the frequency where it splits it between the bass and what they call the mid. Notice that they don't call this the high, but it's actually the mid, but it is the high frequencies above the crossover. Well, the crossover operates anywhere from 100 hertz on up to 10.9K. Yeah. Which so is it's a pretty extreme range for mid. Right. But that's the frequency of the unit as well, mm -hmm. right? It, yeah. it would run, it, it would recreate frequencies from 100 to 10.9. To so if you have that, depending on your setting, that you have the crossover set at, the difference between the bass and the mid might not be that drastic, right? Depending on the operational how that is set, but you could sculpt it there, so you could potentially have, let's say that you're running this through, let's say a drum kit, because I like to use a drum kit as an example, mm -hmm. and you feel that it gets too boomy, you could have the crossover set to an appropriate 200 or something, and then lower the reverb time on the bass fader, so you could sculpt the reverb in a very creative way to to get what you want. Yes, yes. So that's really, really handy. Now, the next one is treble decay. Mm -hmm. 
the way I kind of think about this, and like I said, you, you're using the UA version a lot more than I have any sort of straight one-to-one -one sort of version of the unit. So you'll correct me if I'm wrong here. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking of that almost as a filter cutoff on a synth. That's exactly this, how I would look at it. Right. So it, it cuts off the, um, the high end of the reverb tail. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it goes up to like 10.9K, right? If that's too bright, you could roll that off and lower that to K so that it actually does work in reverse so that you raise that value and it goes faster? Or is it you're lowering that value and essentially lowering the, the frequency of the decay? Let's say that the unit is sitting right in front of you and you're pushing it up and down, mm -hmm. so to speak. The yep. more you push it down the faster the decay is. In other words, it shortens the top end. That makes sense. I mean, if that's the operation, right? So yep. then next one, we have depth, mm -hmm. which is essentially emulating how far away we are from the reverb return, right? How we're kind of placing it in space. Let's say the source is happening on the other side of a parking garage. Right, and you're standing way away from it. If you push that depth knob way up, that's the same concept. It's almost like a pre-delay, but it's not exactly the same. Right. Yeah, that's kind of how I would think about it too. It's like it's how far away are you from the the reverb kind of kicking you in the face again, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. But then, ironically enough, we have pre-delay as yes. well on that, and, and this is dependent on which bank is chosen, uh, whatever kind of reverb algorithm that we're actually using, but it is anywhere from zero up to 255, actually, milliseconds. So that, yes, that's a, in milliseconds, that, just to be very yeah. clear, each number is a different millisecond. Yeah, that's a pretty hefty pre-delay, like it, 255. It yes. Yeah. Right. Then it's just a matter of operation here, right? We, well, there's we additional have... buttons here that we're not mentioning, and part of it is, is there's reverb diffusion and how mm -hmm. diffuse the reverb can be. And then they have mode enhancement buttons, which do certain things as well. And then we right. have decay optimization buttons too. Yeah, and those are the ones I, I mentioned there initially on the, the banks there, whether they were part of that. So I think with different versions of this, that might have been placed a little bit differently possibly. Yes, that could very well be true. You know, what does it sound like? Well, it sounds freaking awesome, right? <laughs> uh, you know, you mentioned where, where is this being used? I mean, I would say, was there a record in the late 70s, early 80s that didn't have a lexicon reverb on it? Probably not. Probably in a lot of people's favorite recordings. It's probably heard. I know it's it was in the the score for Blade Runner, right? It, it was. Like, the original Blade Runner, that is. The, the original, yes. Yeah. It's heard everywhere, and it's you know not just because it was affordable you can get it, but it actually it sounds really really good. The sound that I would use to describe it to me is that it's very very smooth. It's smooth sounding, and I'm not sure if that's just because the frequency limitation on it essentially just goes up to 11k, and, and sometimes probably less that we, depending on how we use the travel decay, right? But it sounds, to me, really, really warm. I, I've used it through the Slate um, Verb Suite Classics here. Mm -hmm. And 
Sounds great. I, I'm not the way I tend to use reverb is not necessarily I go, okay, I'm going to use this box. It's just whatever reverb is going to be appropriate for that, or else you just find yourself reverb surfing for the next hour. Right? <laughs> <laughs> to me, anyway. But I don't think I've pulled up a patch from that what I felt. Oh, that sounds horrible. Mm -hmm. There's just no such thing. They all sound great. But you're the UA guy. You use it a lot more than I do. So what what do you like to use it on? Well, what don't I use it on is a better question. <laughs> well, well, there you go. No. Yeah. I pull up a 224 90% of the time, I believe, on vocals. And at least 50% of that time, it's for using it as a vocal slap. It is mm -hmm. my favorite slap vocal sound in the world. And it just gives enough depth to a vocal, especially a lead vocal, to really make a lead vocal sit awesome in a track. Okay, so how do you dial it up when you do that? Do you have a, a favorite bank that you kind of use? What, what Do you tend to go for... Like a small concert hall, or do you use no? And actually, what, on what this do? morning's mix that I did, where I pulled this up to use a slap, when I pulled up the preset, it's a preset that I've saved of my own tweaking. It actually uses about six of the algorithms for the vocal slap. Oh Jesus! <laughs> <laughs> but it works so damn well. It gives a real nice empty space without sounding like an empty space, if that makes any sense. It gives you that immediate intimacy to a vocal. And then I'll use a second 224 for a tail, like to just be the actual reverb. And I'll set the pre-delay beyond the vocal slap so that I get the slap feel for the intimacy and then the tail on a second 224 to give the vibe of whatever room I'm trying to emulate with the vocal. And that's how I'm using it on vocals, generally speaking. Okay, so when you, I know we've talked about this in the past, but when you start with presumably the pre-delay then, mm -hmm. right? How short do you have that? Or how long do you have that? I guess it's a better question. On the long tail or on the vocal slap? On the vocal slap. Usually it's going to be a 32nd of a note. Generally not. Okay, so whatever that, that math Whatever that math be. works out to be. Okay. And then and how plus long or do minus you keep a few milliseconds based on whether or not the slider can actually hit the exact millisecond because there's some where it just skips past a number for God knows what reason. Right. But then how long is sort of like the tail on that slap? Oh, minimal. You, it's, it's just a slap. It's almost it like a delay. Right. Yeah. But I mean, so you go down and you have that there's virtually no tail on that. And yep. then you have, you add a second one. So then that pre-delay would be dependent on obviously tempo, but you have that come in essentially after the initial delay or the initial slap, slap mm -hmm. right? Yep. And then obviously tailor from there. So the, the first slap is to kind of create that little space around the vocal or the mm -hmm. intimacy, as you would say. Yep. And then... A second 224 would take care of the tail. Yes. In a lot of cases. Something that would be very difficult to do in the hardware world. Well, you need two. Or at least you? you'd need two. <laughs> or, of or, them or, you, or, or they would just run in mono, which you could do, like two dual monos. Right? Sure. But, yeah. but very easy to do in a plug in situation. Yeah. I've used it on yeah. guitars. I've used it on bass. I've used it on drums. I've used it on keyboards and orchestral samples. I've used it on. Pretty much everything. I don't use it 100% of the time, but I do use it a lot. 
Yeah. Does it find its way into one way or another till about every mix that you do? You think? Uh, I would say at least 80% of them. Oh. Yeah. I use this one a lot, and specifically, more or less, like I said, on vocals. It just does something magical with vocals. Mm. Okay, cool. No, they're the great sound. Like I said, I when I listen to them, it's it sounds so cliche to say, but just the warm is the best way to describe it. I think. Well, and the probability of that it has to do with the fact that it doesn't go above a certain. Well, see, yeah, frequency, right? Where anything passed. Like I said, it only goes up to 10.9, but if you roll off anything there, that, that would make it sound warm and smooth. But it's it's not dull. No. You know what I mean? It's it's just warm. It has that. There are modes cream, to it that are creaminess. so creamy, so silky. It's luscious. Yeah. Sonic juiciness at its best. And there he did it. He did it. He got it in again. Sonic juiciness. That's right. Uh, to round off here, you know, the, the 224 was a precursor to the 480. See, I said it again. Boom. I think it's it's a testament to it that as soon as the 480 came out, it, it wasn't like, okay, nobody's using that anymore. You know what I mean? It's still a great sounding reverb. Right. And if you have one, that's awesome. But if you don't have one, you might want to check out some of the software options as well. So because they, they do sound really, really good. It gives an instant professional quality to anything you're gonna run through it. I'll just say that. I'm gonna go that bold. You're gonna go that bold? I am. Well, I'm gonna uh, okay. Let let me just say this then. To, to, <laughs> it is still very much dependent on how you're dialing in your reverb. There's that. You know, levels and that. because. But if you know how is, to dial it in, it gives you that instant professional value. Yeah. Let's end it on that, shall we? Because yes. I, I can't top that. But yeah, it's a great unit. All right. And with that, we're going to move on to our Friday Finds. Chris, what have you got for us today? I get some music today. Mm-hmm. And a band that I really, really like out of Sweden called MCC, which is short for the Magna Carta Cartel. They have just released a new album after a fairly long hiatus. I won't go into the history of the band and stuff, but they have a new album called The Dying Option. And it is just as good as I hoped it would be. If they were going to release new music, the production is top-notch. It's really, really cool stuff. So I was excited when this dropped. And and again, that's uh, MCC, the dying option. Check it out. That is my Friday find for this week. What about you, Jody? I'm going with SSL. It's not too long ago. They just recently released a plug-in called the X-Rated Gate. Ooh. Yes, it's a very, Sounds very saucy. It's very <laughs> saucy when you think about it. The idea of this thing is pretty intense. It has a lot of different functionality to it in terms of how it works for gating. So if you are a nutcase for gates and you don't want to go with something simple on your SSL board, which is just a kind of a simple version of a gate you want to get the X gate because you can change the way ducks happen. You can do mid side gating. You can do intelligent look ahead. It has the ability to change how it's going to react on the knee at what frequency it's fucking crazy. 
That's that's nuts. <laughs> yes, that is nuts. It's yeah. like, it takes SSL gating to a whole nother ballpark. Wow. That's the best way I can say it. And cool. that is my Friday find for this week. All right. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. Doing so will get you weekly reminders about the Tuesday tips when they come out, and we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the name or the word or the numbers 224 and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, like today's episode, hint, hint, contact us at the contact page, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. And with that, I'll say see you next week. Have a good one, Jody. Thanks for listening, people. Bye.